If you have a copy of your scriptures, turn with me to Psalm 139, Psalm 139. And as you're making your way to the Psalm 139, it's going to teach all of us, starting with myself, to have a high and lofty view of God. What does it mean to have a high view of God? As you heard all of our songs this morning that were sung, pointed us in that direction. Our scripture reading in Isaiah 6 uh, pointed us in that direction. And now we have this installment in Psalm 139 as it teaches us to cultivate a high view of God. There's a number of reasons why I chose this text this morning. I thought it'd be helpful by way of introduction to give you those particular reasons. First, um, this is one of my favorites. Um, It's probably the Mount Everest of all of the Psalter, all of the Psalms. But it's one of my personal favorites because it's the single greatest aid to my own personal sanctification. This psalm will teach you so much about God. And when you have a high view of God, it absolutely um, stabilizes and informs your personal progressive sanctification. So if I am to sin, which I do regularly, sadly, I have to step over Psalm 139. It's that powerful and that helpful. So that's one of the reasons. It's one of my favorites. It's the single greatest aid to my personal sanctification. And I hope it becomes yours as, as well. A second reason why I chose it is because we live out our view of God every single day. If you have a high view of God, that should produce in you a high standard of living. If you have a low view of God, it's going to produce a low standard of living. Let me say it differently. If you have a big God, you've got little problems this morning. However, if you have a little view of God, you've got big problems. And so it's significant in cultivating our understanding of who God is. It really puts in us a healthy fear of God. That is the design and that's why it is written. You'll notice in the subscription to the choir master, this would have been a psalm. There are a number of these that would have been sung in corporate worship. So as the worship team just led us, this is the kind of song they would sing as they would enter the building, as they would enter the temple. This is the kind of song in the Old Testament psalm book here. And this is what they would use. This is the content of how they would sing it, not the, not the, 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 the rhythm and the in the flow, but this is the words that they would actually sing. And so it's important, it's it's that kind of uh, instruction. So we can see how did they sing? What did they worship like in the Old Testament? The psalm itself is really to drive us to intimacy and wonder of how awesome God is. It's really to teach us God is awesome and we are not. That is the whole point. If you want a summary statement, God is awesome and we are not. And that's the purpose of this particular psalm. I think, another reason, I think sometimes we just need to stop and remind ourselves of how awesome God is. This is the psalm to do that. This is where you would go in, in the Old Testament to, to understand who God is. 
And so it's a significant song. It should drive us to worship. It should help us with our sanctification. It should inform our singing. All of that is why I would call this the Mount Everest of Psalms. And I want us to summit it today. I want us to spend some time. Now, in fairness, this is really a four-part series. There are four sections in the psalm. It's a a typical four-part series for any pastor. But we're going to do all of it this morning, if you're up for it. We're going to make it through this, and it'll be good, and I'll pace time on, on each one of those. So let me give you a little bit of structure information about the psalm, and then we're going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to get busy. Fair? First, there are four sections, okay? Each section describes the exclusivity of God. By that, I mean what makes God God and what makes him different than his creation. So that's why it's producing in us a high view of God. So there are four sections. There are four attributes of God, his perfect intelligence, his inescapable presence, his inexhaustible power, and his pristine holiness. All four in these four sections are mentioned. It's to say, hey, this is God, and we ought to take note. And then there are four implications. Those four implications are our outline this morning. First implication I can't have privacy. Second implication, I can't run far enough. Third implication, I can't even imagine the details. And fourth implication, I, I, I can't get away with anything. I can't get away with anything. Those are the implications of these exclusive attributes of God as applied to the believer. All right, you ready to read the psalm? It's awesome. Like, you're going to love this. This is, God is awesome. We are not. Take a peek. Oh, Lord, verse 1, you've searched me, and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Lord, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't even attain to it. Then where should I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Why, if if I ascend to heaven, certainly you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take wings of the morning and dwell in even the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, I can hide, and the light about me will be like night. No, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night, why, it's as bright as the day. For darkness is as light with you, O Lord. Why, you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it extremely well. My frame was not hidden from you 
No, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In the book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not even one of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O Lord, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, suppose I could, if I would count them, they are more than sand. I awake and I'm absolutely still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Man, I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them as my personal enemies. Ah, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This is written by David for the choir master to be sung in public and for us to learn and study and cultivate a high view of God. First implication. Here we are. I can't have privacy, verses 1 through 6. I can't have privacy. Well, you notice when you enter the Psalter here in this particular psalm, the first word sets the tone for the whole psalm, does it not? Oh, Lord. This is a psalm about God and how his exclusive, exclusivity is different than his creation, man. And so the tone is set, oh, Lord. It begins that way, it ends that way, the exclusivity of God. And then it says, you search me and you know me. The word search is an interesting word. It was the word they used for the excavation project, like your pro, uh, pro process. If you're looking for an artifact, you would meticulously and carefully remove all the dirt around it and maybe even have a brush. And you'd, you've seen them do that when they're looking for artifacts in, in Israel in particular. And they would search for it and they would move away and it would be very detailed, very intricate. And this is the word that David uses. You search me like that. You, 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 you know me. You, you excavate our hearts. You excavate our lives, right? If I were to say it in a modern idiom, it would be this. He can see right through a person. God sees everything. He knows everything about our lives. He sees everything about our lives. We may hide things from each other, but we don't hide things from God, right? He can see right through a person because he excavates, he searches me. And then he says, and you know me, you know me. It's perfect intelligence. It's comprehensive, exhaustive intelligence. To use a modern idiom, he doesn't miss a thing. He knows you. He knows everything about you. Full disclosure is with God. And he does it effortlessly. It takes him no effort. Just think of the amount of people in this room this morning just keeping tabs on each one of us, each one of you. It's impossible. It'd be too much for any one of us. God does it with the whole creation. Effortlessly. It's one of his great attributes. It is the attributes of his omniscience. 
He has searched me. He knows me. He has perfect intelligence about our lives. It's comprehensive. It's exhaustive. Our lives are an open book, right? And then what he does for you in verse 1, he says, okay, God has perfect intelligence. It begs the question from us, how well does he know me? I mean, does he really know me? Like, I just, I live in Southern Oregon. Does he really care? Does he even, does he know me individually, personally? And so what he does, he says, let me walk through a number of scenarios in the next five verses. And it talks about the depth of his knowledge. It outlines and, and provides color to his perfect intelligence in our lives. First thing he says about God's knowledge, how well does God know us? Does he know everything about us? Does he know everything I do? Yes, look at verse two. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Let me say it like this. God's in the details. He knew when you came in. He knew where you sit. He knew who you talked to. He knows everything about when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, everything, every detail of your life. That's how awesome God is. He's into the small stuff. He doesn't miss a thing. 24-7. He knows everything about your life when you sit down and when you rise up. But it goes to the next verse, part of two, the last half of the verse. He knows what I think. Look what he says there. You discern my thoughts from afar. Before you even think a thought, he knows what you're going to think. He knows why you're doing what you're doing. He knows the motive behind, right, your activity. He knows not only your movements, but he knows your motives, He makes no assumptions. If you've been married any length of time, you know this phrase, assumption is the lowest form of knowledge. When you make an assumption about what your spouse is thinking and you do not know it, fellas, then you get yourself in a mighty big heap of trouble. Now, God's never made an assumption. He's never made an assumption about your life. He knows your mailbox. He knows your financial needs. He knows your home. I mean, he knows every detail of our lives effortlessly. He does it with all of us. And it's not like because, oh, I'm not significant. No, he does it with every single person of his creation. He makes no assumptions. He knows the real deal. He knows our movements. He knows our motives. But it goes on in verse 3. He knows where I go. Look what it says. You search out my path and my lying down and are, the Hebrew word is intimately acquainted with all my ways. See the all there? No exceptions. Comprehensive. All your ways. Every bit of your ways. He scrutinizes. It means to discern or to sift like they would use in the winnowing process, sorting out the wheat from the chaff. He sifts. He discerns our lives. He has perfect discernment. And this means I can't get away with anything. He sees everything, right? I I don't really have privacy. You see, we revel in our privacy. We gate our homes. We fence our homes. We lock our doors. We we kind of, in a Western mindset, we like our privacy, right? Well, I just want to remind you, biblically, you have no privacy. Because God is always the unseen guest in your life. Whether you recognize his presence or not, he's there. If you claim to be in Christ and you're a believer and you have the spirit of God dwelling in you, then he's always with you. There's no place you can go where he is not. And that's why I say you don't have privacy. So every night, every day, 
every city, every hotel, no matter where you go on this planet, he is there. Right? He sees everything, and he does it with no difficulty. Keeping tabs on each one of us is pretty hefty calling. He does it all the time, every day. He is the all-seeing eye of God who has a lock on our lives. His omniscience is comprehensive. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing how much he keeps up with us. And then he goes on. Not only does he know that, but he also knows what we say. Check it out. Verse four, before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Before I even speak, or maybe as some of the younger folks here, we, as I'm raising a teenager, sometimes there's some grumbling, right? Some mumbling going on under their breath. God knows that too. He sees all of it, right? Our words, and, and he says it all. Every word you speak, even before you say them, he knows them. That's kind of frightening, right? And, and this kind of understanding, that's why this text has on one half of it, it's like comforting that he knows everything and it's terrifying on the other side, is it not? It's, it's kind of putting you in the middle here going, yeah, God is awesome. Oh, I'm not. Oh, God knows everything I say. Oh, I said that. You know what I'm saying? It kind of puts this like terrifying comfort tension going as we work our way through this particular passage. And then you have Ephesians 4 that says, let no unwholesome word, not one, proceed out of your mouth. He knows it all. Our tongues are dangerous, are they not? They can get us in a mighty bit of trouble. I'd venture to say most of us get in most trouble with our, with our tongues. I think even God physically uh, put our tongues behind our teeth to see that they're incarcerated, right? That little two-ounce muscle, James says, can absolutely destroy fires. It can turn ships. It's like a rudder on a ship. And so that's why when you look in the mirror, that's what you see. It's designed to stay incarcerated. Don't let it out. Don't let your tongue loose like that, right? So he knows, and he says, every word on your tongue, he knows. That can be a comfort when we're praising the Lord, but when we're slandering or saying something goofy, right, it can also be a bit of terrifying in, in nature itself, right? So he goes on, again, how well does he know me? He says, well, he's, he surrounds us, he envelops us. Look there, verse five. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. He surrounds you, he envelops you. He draws a circle around your life. He sets the guardrails. You're at the center of that circle. It's a complete circle. It was a word they would use when a city was being besieged by an enemy. Then they were surrounded and they couldn't escape the enemy. That's God. He has surrounded your life. He, he wants you to live out his will for your life. He encompasses us. He sets the boundaries of our lives. So we have to conclude that our lives are an open book, right? Before God. Read by God, minute by minute, step by step, thought by thought, active or passive, true or false, walking, resting, busy, idle, public, private. God's perfect intelligence sees our life. And again, it's comprehensive, effortless of all the people in this room and all the people on the planet. You folks, me, I cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. 
I can fool you. I can fool others. But you cannot fool God. It's impossible. And that's why I would say this. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. You have no privacy. Every word you say, every thought you have, everywhere you go. Secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. You're never alone to sin alone. There are no timeouts from God. He's always present. And that can be a comfort to you or that could be terrifying, right? Because God is there. So what's David's reaction? It should be our reaction, right? He's crafting this. He's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. So I think it's important to take a peek at how this settled with David. Look at it, verse 6. Such knowledge, such perfect intelligence is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Can I borrow a teenager's language? This blows my mind. That's what David's saying. I can't, I can't wrap my mind around this. It's too awesome. It's too comprehensive. It's everyone at simultaneous, all over the planet. And, and I, again, we revel in our privacy, but David's saying, you don't have any privacy. Don't, don't be fooled. You can, you can have your own personal privacy at home and think you're in privacy, but you don't. Because God's there, right? And so this reaction is one of wonder and awe. And that's why I said God is awesome. We need some awe in our gatherings, right? Where we go, man, God is awesome and I'm not. And I'm under his authority and under his sovereign care, right? David could hardly contain himself. He said, this blows my mind. This is unbelievable. This is awesome, right? It's lofty. It's weighty. It's also a sign of a healthy church that we have this awe. From time to time, we just have to stop and sit under a text like in Isaiah 6 and go, holy, holy, holy. God is holy, right? It's unfathomably great. It's doxological in nature. But you see, David, um, David is a mere man. Awesome leader, man after God's own heart. But David had his sins recorded in Scripture, did he not? Aren't you glad your sins were not recorded in Scripture? So David, when there was time for the kings to be going to war, where was he? He was back at the palace, slacking on the job, and he got himself in trouble. Commits adultery, has a man killed. So David's saying, God knows everything about my life, and in the middle of that, you sense the change of direction in the psalm. And now he's like an Oh, yeah, God's awesome, but he also knows everything I've done personally. So it gets personal for David. He knows everything about me. And that reaction is the second principle here that we need to apply, the second implication. So what does David want to do? Look at it, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? He wants to run, just like your visceral reaction when caught is to what? Run, to hide, to evade God. So he goes from doxological to, oh my goodness, I need to get out of here. I need to run as far and fast from God as possible. And so you're introduced to the second implication. Not only do you not have privacy, but you can't run far enough. So David wants to get out of Dodge. David wants to take flight. And we're reminded that we can't run far enough. Now, who is the Bible's most notorious fugitive? Jonah, right? Jonah, 
And Jonah 2.2 is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament because Jonah was supposed to be in Nineveh and he goes 900 miles to Tarshish trying to evade God, trying to outrun God, trying to run from God. And what happens in Jonah 2.2 is it states that David, I mean, Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish, the depths here. You go to the deepest part of the sea here in verse 9. He's in a fish at the bottom, some fathoms down, being cared for by God, and he's crying out to God, and God hears Jonah's prayer. It doesn't matter where you go. God is there. His omnipresence is in picture here in this next section in verses 7 through 12. So it's doxological in 1 to 6, his perfect intelligence. Now we're introduced to his inescapable presence that you cannot evade God. I cannot evade God. He's all knowing and he's all present. And so again, David being a good author of prose answers the question you should be asking. How, like how, how, how well does he know where I am? Like, how can he find me anywhere on the planet? And so what David does is he says, let me walk you through a number of hypotheticals. These aren't real. They're hypotheticals. But if you could do this, it wouldn't matter. God would still be there. That's what David's trying to accomplish. And so like he did in the other words, how well does he know me? How, how well can I hide is the next question that David wants to answer. If I could do the following, which you cannot, but if I could, he's still there. That's the bottom line. God is still present. God is still there. So he runs through kind of the different directions. He, he brings up some distance. Let me put some distance between me and God. Some darkness. Just take a peek. Look at what he does. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. Well, certainly. If you hypothetically could just on your own head off to heaven this afternoon, then he'd be there. If I made my bed in Sheol or hell, he would be there. If I took the wings of the morning, I had flight like an eagle, and I could go as far east or the far west as possible, guess what? He's there. What if I go deep? I go into the depths of the ocean, you know, fathom after fathom underneath, hide out in an ocean cave underwater, under the, the, the weight of water. Hmm. He's there into the uttermost parts of the sea. Even your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Okay. Darkness, third conceivable thing. What if I, darkness has to be his crypt. Now, he can't see through the light. He can't see the darkness. So I, you get darkening shades. You get one of those lead blankets in your house. You get in the closet and you hide out. Certainly God can't see me there. This is the kryptonite that gets him. Or some of you are hunters, I hope. So we should be in, getting an invitation to go hunting soon. And so we, you're out hunting and you got camo on. And I can't pick you out in the woods at all, but God can, right? A deer can't, but God can, right? And so you, you try the cover of darkness. And you know what he says? Mm -mm. Darkness and light, they're the same with God. He doesn't have that distinction. He doesn't have that limitation, Right? There's nowhere you and I can go where God is not. God is awesome. So you can hide from me. You can hide from the elders. You can hide from your Bible study. You can hide from your spouse. It doesn't matter who you, you can hide from us, man to man. You don't hide from God. And he says, listen, it's inescapable presence. There is nowhere you can go where God is not. Again, it's fascinating to think. God is everywhere. 
perfect presence, omnipresence. I think it's important to just pause for a second. And we're in the white space between 12 and 13. We've seen two attributes. And I think it's just healthy to kind of just reflect a little bit. How does this sit with you? Well, it really depends on where you're at with the Lord, right? If you've got unconfessed sin or you think you're getting away with something and you're doing a certain behavior, whatever that is, I think this will either be for you this morning a threat or a thrill. If you're walking with Christ and you're walking in the Spirit, you're not perfect, nobody's perfect here, but if you're walking in the Spirit and you're doing everything you can, then this passage ought to be of tremendous comfort that he totally is taking care of you and your family and your kids. He knows everything that's going on in your life. Nothing's, there's no secrets with God. He's never made an assumption. He's never had an aha moment. God's never gone, oh, I didn't know Mike didn't know how to get off a ladder properly, right? He didn't, he didn't do any of that, right? He, he knew all of that. He, he saw everything that sovereignly comes in our life. Everything that affects us comes through the sovereign hand of God first, right? Everything in our lives. So that's a thrill or it's a threat, right? You're either going to have like David, you're going to be going, this is awesome, or you're going, I need to get out of Dodge. I need to get out of Applegate Valley as fast as possible this afternoon. I need to hit the road and head to the coast and find some cave on Secret Beach and hang out. No, not going to work. So it's either a threat or a thrill. It's either wonderful or terrifying. It's either comforting or fearful. It all depends on where we're at, right? We live out our view of God every single day. This text is designed to inflate your view of God. It's designed to go, wow, God is awesome. In my private life and in my public life, it doesn't matter. This is what happens when you run into a text like this, where you see the awesomeness of God and we are not. So where are you? Thrill or threat? Only you can answer that. Third implication. I can't imagine the details. I can't imagine the details. We are introduced to his inexhaustible power. It's the attribute in theology called omnipotence, that God can do anything. He is all powerful. This is your God. This is why you're here worshiping this morning. This is why you're singing this morning. He can do anything. He's all-knowing, he's all-seeing, and he's all-powerful. God can do anything. No limits. So where would you go, or where did God go, when he wanted to describe his power? You know where he went? He went to a mother's womb and the creation of a human life, which is vastly unseen, right? The most of the creation of a human being is not seen. Now, you'll get a young couple, and God bless them, they come with a sonogram, right? And you've, many of you have seen sonograms your whole life, and they go, look at little Billy. And Billy looks like a peanut. But you smile, you're gracious, you're a grandfather, a great-grandfather, that's like, you're going, oh, yeah, it's awesome. Look, look at that. Yeah, that's just awesome. You can't see anything, you know what I'm saying? You're just smiling, you're being a dutiful grandfather, grandmother, and you're like, yes, he looks so cute, he almost looks like you, you know, and you're like, I look like Planner's Peanut. Okay, got it, that's wonderful news, you know? And so this is what we do, and we smile, it's just part of the process, and they're excited, and they've got a child, that's okay, just don't be weird about it, just enjoy the moment. 
But listen, most of it, other than a little bit of sonogram, you don't see. But God says, I'm intricately involved in the creation of every human life. This is why we hate abortion so much. Because God creates human life. And we are people of destiny and purpose. And that's why Psalm 139 is Mount Everest, even in this category, right? And he describes his power of creating human life and his personal involvement in that creation to demonstrate to you how powerful God is. Look what he says. You form me in my inward parts. That is the Hebrew word for your kidneys, down to the details, the kidneys. You knit me together. So embryonic stage, organs, skeleton, veins, skin, all of that. He is involved with every piece of it. You formed me. You knit me together. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven the depths of the earth. That's a metaphor for the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, that embryonic stage. And in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there wasn't one of them. I hadn't had taken a breath yet. God knows you. Before you took your first breath, he knows you. He formed you. He wove you. He knit you together. He knows everything about you. He's all powerful, right? He formed your organs. Brought every cell together. He added the veins, the nerves, the muscles, everything about you. It's unfathomable. The human fabric, the eye alone is is majestic in how it functions and works. And God's in the details and he knows everything about you. And if you want to know how powerful God is, look at the creation of a human life. And not only does he know about your physicality, he knows everything about your life. He's ordered your days. You have a purpose here. You're a person of destiny. You, he, he, he has a plan for your life. This isn't haphazard. This is God's sovereignty working out in your life. Everything comes through the very hand of God, right? From preborn child all the way through to adulthood. And that's why David says, I can't even imagine the details. God's in the details of your life. You may think at times he doesn't care. He does, right? We're people of destiny, verse 16. His providence is amazing. He's the potter. We are simply the clay. His guardianship, his stewardship of your life, we are objects of his constant care. And I would venture to say this in the latter part, verse 17 and 18, he probably, I know he does, he thinks more about you than you think about him. That is stunning. That's your awesome God. That's the God that saved you. That's the God that wants a personal relationship with you. Check it out. How precious to me are your thoughts, oh God. How vast is the sum of them. A little hyperbole, but if I could count them, they'd be like the sands of all the oceans of all the seas. That's how much God thinks about you. Isn't it kind of like, ah, I don't probably don't think much about God as he thinks about me. He's thinking about you all the time, Right? He cares about every piece of your life. When I awake, I'm still with you. He's under, you're under his constant care. Can, do you grasp the commitment of God to you as a family and as an individual? It's mind-boggling. You're never alone. You can never say nobody cares because God cares. Right? 
You, you can never say, I have nobody to turn to. God wants you to turn to him, right? Those are all kind of fallacious statements that we make in our humanness. But when we get a high view of God and we start living out that, it shapes how we think about God. Such detail is a treasure. It's a pleasure. And that's why David's writing in such language. Quantify it, it's like all the sands. There are no rivals. God is awesome. And David says, I can't imagine the details. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. It's unbelievable. So I can't have privacy. Nope. I can't run far enough. No, he can't. I can't imagine the details. His omnipotence. Fourth, I can't have secrets. I can't get away with anything. And we're introduced now to his pristine holiness. Now, we got some work to do here. As I was reading, you should have felt a interruption in the passage, right? You should have felt some tone change, serious language change. You should have felt like, wow, that's weird. We're cruising along, a few speed bumps along the way about who God is, and then all of a sudden, we hit this wall of caustic barbs and aggressive thinking. Let's read it again, and let me come back and help you understand it. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. <laughs> oh, men of bloodshed, depart from me. They speak against me with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete head hatred. I count them as my personal enemies. So it feels like something's gone awry. You should sense in the text that David's exasperated. He has now seen how awesome God is, and then he looks at the landscape of people, and he can't understand why they would take the Lord's name in vain, shake their fist at God, and hate God. And so he takes up God's cause, right? He's not bloodthirsty. It's not what this text intends for us to understand. So he takes up God's defense, but he crosses the line, right? We're to, we're to hate the sin. That is true in Scripture. But we're never to hate the sinner. Sinners are supposed to sin. That's what they do. We don't get amazed, blown off track by that. We're like, ah, that's just what they do. But there are times we get a little over our skis and we hate the sin and the sinner. This is the moment. This is where it's captured in scripture, right? His zeal made him a little drunk in his understanding of what he should be thinking about these people. And so he, he's basically saying, God, I'm on your side. I will take names. I will wreak havoc for those people who don't love you and will not submit to these previous 18 verses. I don't have a category for these people and I'm gonna take them out. That's what you get in this text. He's grieved over their sin. It's deplorable evil. They're taking your name of vain. He says, I hate them. I hate them with another. I, I, deep, all the way down to my boots, I can't stand them. It should be righteous anger. In this case, it's not. There is a case for righteous anger, right? This would not be an example of that. And so his loyalty to God makes him respond kind of silly, and so as he's doing that, 
You gotta feel as he's writing it, he's taken up God's cause and in the middle of it, he realizes again his own sin and the depth of his sin and that his sin is recorded in scripture. Aren't you glad? I'll say it again. Your sin is not inscripturated for every generation to read. Look what old Nick did. You know, it's not there. Aren't you thankful? Right? Aren't you thankful? Well, David, is, David gets it. So in between 22 and 23, he catches himself again. He's like, those sorry dogs. And then he realizes, oh, I'm the sorry dog. And then he moves from verse 1 where it states emphatically that God searches us and knows us to an invitation. And what happens in 23 and 24 is dangerous. It's what I call a dangerous prayer. This whole thing is technically a prayer. But it's a dangerous prayer. It's when you invite God to search you. So you go on the offense. Kind of one is like the defense. Like this is what God is. This is who he is. And this is how you are not. Then he says in 23 and 24, you see David saying, but I want it. I want authenticity. I want to have a clean conscience. I want to have a clean heart. Look at it. Look at the verbs he just piles up in staccato fashion. Search me, oh God. Know my heart. And look how personal it is. He's not worried about any of you. He's not worried about the community. He's not worried what they're growing in between here in Medford. He doesn't care. He's like, search me. I'm the problem, right? And that's a good thing. Whenever you walk on a campus of any church, you've got to recognize you're the worst sinner in the room. When I arrive here, on the weekends I'm here, I know I'm the worst guy here. And that's the truth. That's why Paul could say, I'm the chief of sinners, right? And so now he's saying, hey, I can't, I can't fix everybody else. I've got to fix what's in here. And so he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Look at the exclamation. Try me. Test me. Know my thoughts. He's taken all those things before he mentioned it. He's bringing them forward. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Dig deep is what he's saying. Lord, you have free reign in this old chap. You have free reign, sins of omission, sins of commission, blind spots. We all have them. Find the faults. Dig deep. Check my motives. And that's why I say this is a dangerous prayer. And the principle is this. You don't get away with anything. It's pristine holiness. You can take up any cause, any Christian cause, and there are a bazillion of them you could take up. But God wants your heart right. He's more concerned about you being than he is you doing. But we in the West, we just have a tendency, I have this tendency, I list towards doing because doing's easier than being. I'd rather you just tell me what to do and I go do it and I check the box and I feel like I'm right with God. This is not the case. This is what it really looks like. This is what, why this is the single greatest aid to my personal sanctification because I pray this regularly. It's hard to pray. The first time you pray it, you'll catch yourself. It'll, it'll kind of buckle a little bit and you'll pause. And you're like, ooh, what am I bringing on here? You know what I'm saying? Like, this is kind of creepy. You know, like, this is spooky stuff. This isn't Halloween stuff. This is spooky stuff. I'm actually inviting God to do whatever he's got to do and to make me into a man of God. First time you pray it, you'll pause. But it's so good. It's so wonderful. Right? 
It's awesome. Examine me, know me, test me. And then he says, teach me. I love this. It's in the old King James, into the everlasting, into the old paths. The straight and narrow of Psalm 1, right? That the man of God, he avoids certain things and he pursues certain things, right? Keep me on the old paths. I love that. The old way, my whole life, into moving into the future. All right. It's a lot, huh? I'm tired. I think I wore myself out. Four sections, okay? Four sections. Four amazing attributes of God. His perfect intelligence in our lives, his inescapable presence, his inexhaustible power, and his pristine holiness that we don't get away with anything, right? All of this, what does it do to you? Well, number one, you don't have privacy. Privacy is a myth. I think we've dealt with that pretty vociferously. It's a myth. You can't run far enough. You're never going to outrun God. I've tried. Trust me from experience, you don't want to try. If you don't believe me, ask Jonah. Three, I can't imagine the details. That God is intricately involved with every single one of you. You're not, you have a purpose. You're on this for a reason and for a season. And you need to live your life to its fullest. But if you ever have the crazy thought that you don't matter, it's just not true. The devil will speak that into your heart. Like he'll put thoughts into your head and get you all messed up. But that's not what the scripture teaches. He cares a lot more about you than you probably care about him. He's committed to you. The details are absolutely staggering, you know. And and it's a reminder, even just like sometimes there's features, you know, that you look at yourself and you're like, I don't like that about me, right? Physical features. I look in the mirror. I buy mirrors that make me look thin. Like I walk in and I'm like... He's like Adonis. And then I go to someone else's mirror. I'm like, hey, how did I gain so much weed? They're going to their house, you know. You know what I'm saying? We all, you know, we get a little weird about our physical nature. and You're aging and certain things happen. Things don't work. Everything just, it's just part of the deal. But he, he carefully made you just the way you are. And you're unique and special and he cares about you just the way you are. So don't try to be somebody else. Be you. Do you. Right? That's what my sons, my teenage sons say. Do you, dad? That's what they say all the time. It's just a reminder. I can't imagine the details. And finally, I I don't get away with anything. No secret sins. Just like there are no secret Christians. We talked about that in Matthew 5. There are no secret sins. You know, secret sin on earth is open scandal in heaven. He sees everything. And that's what keeps me from sinning a lot of times. Like I'm thinking like nobody's around. And then I'm realizing, oh, Except Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, the whole Trinity sitting around going, what are you doing, Chip? You know, that doesn't, that's not cool, right? <laughs> that's what happens. That's why, I mean, this psalm is so helpful, and it draws you to a high view of God, and it should produce in all of us, starting with myself, a high standard of living, a personal holiness, right? Well, I hope... This psalm accomplished what David intended to accomplish, put a little awe in us. Sometimes we just need to step back from all the stuff and remind ourselves that God is awesome and we're not. And I hope that that's comforting and encouraging and strengthening for us today. It could be that it's terrifying. You can come to any of the elders or anybody, really, 
And we know the Lord personally. We'd love to introduce you to the Lord and talk to you about it and say, hey, this is who God is. This is who you are. This is what you need to repent of. You know, it's just the whole process is there, right? Again, this is the Mount Everest of Psalms for me. So I thought you might enjoy it as well. Let's pray together. Take a minute before we close in prayer and, and sing to the Lord. Just take a minute and search your heart. Maybe, maybe stick a toe in the water in 23 and 24 and kind of rummage around in there and say, wow, that's a, that's a da- I even have it written into my Bible, a dangerous prayer. Okay? And then our worship team will make their way up and get settled into their positions and lead us in singing, and I'll pray. Just take a second. Father, thank you for David writing this in such a way that we can cultivate a high view of God, a healthy fear of God. This psalm really does drive us to worship, to intimacy, to wonder. Like verse says, such knowledge is too wonderful, it's too high. I mean, it really does accomplish that. We know you're good, Lord. And C.S. Lewis says, you're good, but you're not safe, right? And we learn these things. Help us to have a healthy fear of God. Help this to be a comfort to us. It's, a, it's such a challenging text. It's comforting and terrifying all at the same time. But, Lord, you work it out in our hearts. You draw people to yourself. I pray for if there's someone here who's never fallen on the mercies of God, that they would fall today on the mercies of God and surrender their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.